says these things, that to these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. The member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Brought him outside and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. He said to him, So shall your offspring be. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from earth, the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. But he said, O oh Lord God, how? Am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. When birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The sun had gone down, and it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between those pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenezites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephites, and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And this is the word of the Lord this morning. We have come to a, uh, a critical chapter, not only in Genesis, but Actually, in all of the Bible, all of Scripture, we talked about how Abram has been a man who is journeying, who's learning to trust God, to follow God. But here in this chapter, we see a man who is justified, a man who is saved by God. More importantly, we see how a person is justified by God, and we see the basis for that justification. You know, what distinguishes Christianity from all other religion 
is the fact that there is no means or method by which you can become a Christian on or through your own effort. You cannot become a follower of Christ by anything that you can do. And all other religions operate on the opposite basis. They operate on the basis that if you do certain amount of things or you do enough, then you can and will be saved. Mormons, for example, say that you are saved by grace through faith after you do all you can. And that is why you nice-looking young men that don't drink coffee and always wear their white shirts and black ties and call themselves elder or whatever show up at your door. They're trying to do all they can. I had an encounter, actually, a phone call, a cell phone. I'm not sure how they got it, but a Jehovah's Witness man called me and began to talk to me and asked me how things were going some time ago in, in the world and what I thought about them. And, and I told him what I thought about him. And he began to reveal to me that he was Jehovah's Witness. And, and I tried to go down a few paths with him on doctrine or whatever. And, and uh, we kind of went around in circles for a while until I told him I had to get back to work. But I didn't realize till afterward that it's probably not the best approach to take with a Jehovah's Witness because they're well trained on how to foil these arguments that we give to them as Christians. And as I was looking, a man said, what you need to do is just ask him, say, I'm going to die in two minutes. How do I know I'm going to heaven? Because in a... Jehovah's Witness mind, you have to do enough work. You have to pass out enough tracks or watchtowers or whatever. Maybe if you do enough, then God will save you. In Islam, forgiveness is based on a combination of Allah's grace and the Muslim's work. That's why the Muslim has to follow these five tenets, whether it's praying five times a day or making a journey to Mecca or whatever it is, they have to follow these, these things and hopefully God will be gracious or Allah will be gracious to them after they do all they can. We are different in Christianity. The work of salvation is accomplished. Not by our efforts. But by the work of Christ and Christ alone. You cannot earn your way. You cannot force your way. You cannot merit your way into salvation. But thanks be to God, you don't have to. Christ has paid the way. Christ has accomplished salvation on your behalf. And all we have to do is what Abraham did in this chapter. So we look into our text this morning and we'll notice first of all that God... God speaks to Abraham here, or Abram in verse 1. Pick up the narrative of Abram and remember, he has just defeated Kedor Laomer and four other kings that had kept the 
cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and these neighboring cities in bondage for 12 years. They'd come and they'd captured Lot and his family and all his possessions. And, and Abram gathers his men together and they go and fight and surprise these kings and they rescue his nephew Lot. And, and, and when you think about this, this becomes important because the opening words of this chapter, it tells us, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And he said, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Of course, what things are we talking about? We're talking about the defeat of the kings. The defeat by this mighty warrior Abram who takes 318 servants of his own house and plans a masterful attack that liberates the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. After these things, the mighty warrior, the mighty king, receives a vision from God and, and the Lord appears to him and says, Abram, I am your shield. I am your reward. I am the one who is caring for you and protecting you. And I am the one who will bless you. I am your shield and your defender. I am the one who will watch over you and keep you. Aren't you glad this morning that any battle we face is not ours? It belongs to the Lord. Amen. When we fight, we, we fight realizing it is not me. I cannot do it on my own. But I have strength and hope in the name of the Lord. And I can call upon Him. And He is the one who fights our battles. He is the one who brings victory in our life. And here we notice in chapter 15, the very first time, God uses those words, fear, fear, not. Fear not. And on and on we read that through Scripture. Fear not. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid because God is with us. And those words are not just words of a, of a neat song that sound good when we have a guitar and a, and a bass and drums and, and we hit these har harmoni harmonious notes. These are words that we have to remember. Our God is in control of the nation's rage. And the people rise up against God. The Lord looks at them and laughs because He is the one who is in control. And He is the one, like I said earlier, who looks at us and says, Be still. I am God. I am God. God speaks to Abram and He says, Do not be afraid. Fear not. I am your shield. So we see this, and then we notice, secondly, Abram's response. Abram's response to God, verses 2 and 3. He sees this vision from the Lord. God is speaking to him, saying, Abram, fear not, I am your shield, I am your great reward. And look at what Abram's response is, verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is, is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. 
And you can certainly understand and and see why Abram would say these things. He doesn't understand how God is is going to fulfill His promise of making the heritage of Abram like the sand of the sea or the dust of the earth. As mentioned in the last chapter, even if Abram and and Sarai are, are still capable of having children at this point, they're probably not going to have enough children to make a nation, a great multitude. How exactly is this going to come about? Right now, Abram's figured that the one who's going to take over all of his possessions is his household steward, his household manager, this, this Eliezer of Damascus. No doubt risen to the ranks of being in charge of all of Abram's affair. And Abram realizes, hey, at this point of my life, he is going to receive them. I have no one else to give them to. And this is an appropriate response. We, we do this all the time. We we look, we judge with our eyes, we make assumptions. As to stand there this morning and say next Sunday we'll have a thousand people in our church, we would look around and we'd say, I don't know how that's going to happen. The sanctuary is not big enough to see the thousand people. We've seen it when people are out here and we have a full church and, and how in the world do you think that's really going to happen where there's going to be a thousand people here? I'm just saying that so you get here early next week and not be late. <laughs> so here he is looking at his advanced age, listening to God. God is telling him your reward is, is going to be very, very great. And Abram says, how is this going to happen? And look at what happens. God answers it. God answers Abram. Our third point this morning, Abram's wondering how this is going to come to fruition. How is this going to work out? How is this going to happen? And notice what God tells him in verses 4 and 5. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. Your very own son. Your very own son will be your heir. The Lord brings Abram outside and He says, look toward heaven. Look toward heaven, number the stars if, if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram's wondering how this is going to happen in God. God reminds him of His promise. His promise made way back in Genesis chapter 12. I will make of you a great nation. I will make your seed as the stars of the heaven." The Lord brings Abram outside and says, look. Look, here you are. See the stars. See see how many there are. And consider my promises to you. Consider what I have made to you. Consider the Word that I have given you. It has nothing to do with the message, but since we're here, I'll throw it in. You can thank me later. But you know, I wonder how good it would do if a lot of us would put down our phones, go outside, and consider the majesty and awesomeness of God. If we would consider the stars, you know, we sing that song, Oh Lord my God, when I, in awesome wonder, I see, consider all, I should say, all that your world has made, I I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, your power 
throughout all the majesty displayed. We would just turn out and go, go look at the night sky and realize God has made a promise that is going to come to pass as numerous as the stars are. If we would just look at the this rain and the rainbows that come afterward and remember the promise. God will never again flood this earth. He will be faithful to us. We would consider the snow and, and remember the promise that just as no two snowflakes are like, so God has made each and every one of us. And if God takes the time to design these snowflakes that fell in such great multitude yesterday, how much more is God looking over our lives? world is shouting to us there is a great and awesome God. We neglect to see it so often. Already in Genesis we've seen the promise through the rainbow. Now the promise is seen given through the stars. Abram, look outside. Look up. Look and see the night sky. As numerous as the stars are, so will your offspring be. God is speaking to Abram. Abram responds. God speaks back to him. And then our fourth point, Abram. Abram believes. Believes God. And here we see in an instant, the moment, one of the most important, vital Scriptures in all of this book of Holy Scripture, the most important one is, is written right here. It becomes the linchpin. It becomes the, the whole heart of the matter. It becomes the, the basis on which we are founded and which becomes so much different than every other religion out there in the world. When these simple words are written, Genesis 15, verse 6, Abram believed the Lord. The Lord counted it to Abram as righteousness. This verse cannot be overemphasized, overstated, or, or whatever else you want to say. In this passage, we see how every person who would have right standing before God must approach Him. We do not come before God with effort or ability we do not come before God holding in our hands all that we have done or how good we think we are. We come to God and we simply approach Him by faith and say, Lord, I believe that Your work on the cross is enough for me. And when we do, God takes our sinful hearts and our sinful lives and He exchanges them as we just sang about our worship team. Just sang about. He, he takes our sin and He exchanges it and He justifies us. And now we stand before Him righteous. Abram is not justified because He comes with the righteousness on our own. No, He is given the righteousness of Christ upon His life and He believes and now He stands before God by faith, believing what God has done in this life. How important is this verse? It's so important that it's mentioned 
three separate times in the New Testament to describe how justification, how salvation is achieved. In Romans chapter 4, Paul writes these words and he says, What then shall we say was gained by Abram? Our forefather according to the flesh, for if Abram was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. If Abram could be justified by how good he is, he has something to brag about. He has something to which he can say, look at me and look at what I have done. Verse 3, though, says of Romans 4, but what does Scripture say? Scripture says Abram believed God. Abraham believed God. And that is what was counted to him as righteousness. Paul is arguing here that Abraham, forefather, the one we are speaking of in chapter 15, was justified was declared righteous in the sight of God, not because of what he had done, but because of his faith in God. Expands on this further in Galatians chapter 3, verse 2. Paul says, let me ask you, only this, did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh, did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Verse 5 of Galatians 3, does He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so? Works of the law are by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul is writing to the church in Galatia because there are people coming into the church and says, oh, you're a believer. You, you trust in Christ. Now here's what you have to do. You have to go and get circumcised. Paul is writing to them and saying, look, it isn't because Abraham was circumcised that God made him righteous. No, he was made righteous because he believed God. Abraham's faith was enough for God to impute His righteousness, to add His righteousness to Him. James again. James uses the same Scripture. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? He say that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. The Scripture said was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. See that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You hear those words and you think attention is taking place between Paul and James. And in fact, this has caused much division in the church down throughout the centuries. Those who would say that you have to work to achieve your salvation and those who would say salvation is achieved by Christ alone. It's not that Abraham was working for his justification, but his faith. His faith is what compelled him to believe God, to trust 
fully and solely upon what God had said and what was able to do. And so when we go back to Romans, this picture becomes even more clear. Romans 4, verse 16, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all His offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. The presence of the God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead. And he calls into existence the things that do not exist. In other words, what Paul is saying is that, look, your faith is in a God who can raise the dead. Who can bring something out of nothing. Your faith is in a God who is so much greater and what you and I can even imagine or realize. Verse 18 of Romans 4, in hope, he, speaking of Abraham, believed against hope that he should be the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. He considered the bareness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's why his faith, verse 22, was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In other words, the reason Abraham was justified, the reason Abram was justified, was simply because he trusted. He trusted, he believed in the promises of God. Despite what was seen on the outside, despite his own biological failing and shortcoming, He knew that God was going to give him a child of his own. And Abram simply believed it. This is the same faith that you and I have when we come to God. You think about this on its end. How in the world can we believe that a man would come from heaven? Be born of some miraculous conception. Born without a father there to impregnate his mother. How do we believe that a man can live a sinless life? Can die on the cross and rise again three days later. Now lives forever. How do we believe that? 
it sounds insane and so many look at it and say it's insane and they don't consider that there's so much evidence that points to the reality of God. Paul said those who are perishing this preaching of the cross is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. And how this all works, I don't know and I don't understand. But I do know this. One day I bowed my knees before Him. I said, Lord, I believe that You are the Son of God and I ask You to forgive me of my sins and make me a new creation. And I know in that instant I was changed forever. And everyone who will trust in Jesus Christ, you can have that promise. And I want to remind you this morning, doesn't matter how good you live or how hard you work. Doesn't matter what you have done in your past, how far down the road of sin you have been on. If you can stand here today and declare that you believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, you will be saved. This is what makes us so much different because everyone else is out there telling you, do good things, give enough money, pray hard enough, do enough. Remember one of the first times we were Moved out here, we're on the streets of New York City. Because you're from Kansas, New York is a big deal. So most of you are like, I'd never want to go back there. That's okay. But but it was a big deal. And, and we were there, and, and it was right around 5 o'clock. And, and I noticed all these hot dog vendors are, are throwing out their prayer rug and pointing to the east and bowing in prayer towards Mecca. You see that and you think, what a... What an insane, what an insane hope. What an insane hope. We were there another time and it's on a Sunday evening and it was right around dusk and bus pulled up there wherever we was. I think it was in Little Italy and a whole bunch of Orthodox Jews came out from Brooklyn to do whatever they were going to do because their Sabbath was over, it had been over. They watched them in their garments Watch them in their clothes and their hair and everything else. What a, what, a, what a way to live thinking I've got to do all these things. I've got to observe this law. And Jesus looks at you and says, simply believe in me and trust in me. Simply bow before me and accept my gift of eternal salvation. I need to say this before I moved on. Faith. Faith is not a force. It's not a certain amount that you have to exert. Televangelists will tell you this morning that if you would just believe hard enough, God would do something miraculous. It's a convenient out for them because when the miraculous doesn't happen, then it's your fault, not theirs. They got your money and they're going to buy their private jet and go to their vacation home and you're stuck. It's not a matter of believing hard enough. It's simply a matter of trust in who you are trusting in. 
We placed our faith in the eternal God of heaven who sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. When you are fully convinced that God is able to do that, Paul said, if you confess with your mouth and you believe with your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you are saved. If you trust in Jesus Christ, I tell you this morning, not because of who I am, but because of what God's Word says. Abram trusted in the Lord. It was counted to him as righteousness. Abram believed God. He was considered righteous. Now we need to consider the rest of this chapter because it shows us how this promise, how this promise was guaranteed. And it was because God executes, executed a covenant with Abram. This promise is guaranteed through a covenant that is executed. We're not near as familiar with this concept of covenant as we should be. But throughout Scripture, we see God making covenants with His people. Covenant, often in the form of a treaty, was a common way that ancient Near Eastern people formed relationships. Covenants and treaties were ratified in various ways in the ancient Near East. The idea of cutting a covenant probably refers to the practice of sacrificing an animal in order to ratify the covenant. In Jeremiah 34, 18, for example, the cutting of the animal is used as a symbol of what will happen to those who broke the agreement. The most common way of ratifying a covenant is by swearing an oath and God chooses to bind Himself to His people through a covenant to demonstrate the depths of His commitment to them, the depth of commitment He expects from them. Here we see at various times throughout Scripture God expressing Himself in terms of a covenant, such as with Noah, with Abraham here, the nation of Israel, with David. So what happens in the rest of this chapter is God making and ratifying a covenant with Abram. A covenant to him that says, I am going to do what I said I am going to do. Verse 7 of Genesis 15, He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I will possess it? Verse 9, God said to Abram, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. And he brought all these and he cut them in half and he laid each half over against the other. God is reminding Abram that he is the one who has brought Abram out. And Abram says, Okay, how, how is this going to happen? I believe you. Now how, how are you going to do this? God says, bring these animals out. Let's cut them in half. Let's lay them side by side on an altar. 
from does so. And in verse 11, he's waiting for God to come and ratify this covenant. He's driving away the animals that would come and take the sacrifice. Verse 12, we're told that in the evening, a deep sleep falls upon Abram. The Lord appears and he tells him what will happen. He says the Israelites are going to be in the land of Egypt for 400 years and then they're going to come back to this land. But notice what happens here in verses 17 and 18. It says when the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give the land, the river of Egypt to that great river, the river Euphrates. On that day, the Lord makes this covenant. He says, this is how I am going to do it. I promise you, I am keeping my word. Keeping my word, I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. The story is here for a reason. It's here to remind us what Hebrews chapter 9 tells us. Verse 11, Hebrews 9, verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, it is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls, the sprinkling of Defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our dead conscience and dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. What is the writer saying? He's saying, look, the same way that Abram took these animals and he sacrificed them. He cut them in half. He laid them on the altar. The same way that Moses instructed the people of Israel to take the animals and to bring them to the holy place. Sacrifice them year on the altar, year after year, millennia, century after century. The same way that I took the animal and I sacrificed it on the altar and covered Adam and Eve. The skins from that animal in that same way. I am sacrificing not an animal, but the blood of my son, Jesus Christ. 
See, it is the cross that reminds us and tells us that God is the guarantor. That God is going to keep his word. On that cross hung my shame. On that cross hung my guilt. On that cross hung all my sin. How do I know that I am saved? Because I see the cross and I realize God is and will keep His word forever. God will do what He has said He has done. The time I looked at my mom and I lied about what I had done and where I had been. Those things I used to take from the local gas station. All of the sin that I have committed in my past. God looks at me and says, you're forgiven. It is wiped free. Your slate is clean. Again, not because of what I have done, but simply because I trust in what God says He is going to do and has done on my behalf. But don't have to go home and sacrifice a cow this afternoon or a turtle dove. You know what I do? I stand before God and say, I believe you. I trust you. Know that you have forgiven me. My question that you have to answer this morning is this Have you participated in this new covenant? Have you received this gift that He offers to you? You sitting there this morning thinking, Look, I came to church and half the church is not here because of the weather. I came, that ought to count for something. Are you saying, Lord, I believe that you died for my sin. You rose again for my justification. You know, fear to read on in Galatians, and I'm not going to. Paul says this, that this covenant is for everyone. For Jew, for Gentile, for male, for female, for slave, for free, for black, for white, for rich, for poor. This promise is for you. If you will accept this message, if you will receive what the Bible tells us, you will be saved. I challenge you to receive it today. In Jesus' name. Now let's pray together this morning, shall we? Lord, we are so glad we are so glad that you took our place. You gave your life for us. You exchanged our sin and our shame and you gave to us robes of righteousness. You have done it and you have ratified this covenant. You have sealed this promise, not with the blood of a goat or a bull, but with 
with the blood of your only begotten Son. We stand here today forgiven. We stand here today free. We stand here today justified. We stand here today knowing that our sins are gone. Lord, I pray that we would receive this truth into our lives. If there is someone here who has not received the gift of your grace, that this morning they would receive it. God, they would bury their sin and their shame, their guilt, or whatever it may be that hinders them. They would stand there knowing they are forgiven because, because of what you have done. Lord, help us to appreciate this truth. Help us to live in this truth. Help us to understand this truth. Help us to stop thinking that because we give or because we show up or because we pray or because we read through our Bible every year that somehow we're good people. Help us to understand because of what you did on the cross. Help us simply to trust you. Believe what you have said, we pray. Ask this in Jesus' name. Why don't you stand together with us here as we finish the song we're about to sing.